Gresham College presents Cultural Misfits, Gender in Early 20th Century Literature by Professor Georgia Johnston. And it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I just want to thank the Fulbright US-UK Commission and also Gresham College. And as I say, it's my great pleasure um, to present my work to, to you today. This work um, is part of a book I'm writing about literary presentations of gender as those representations connected to gender revised literary form. And so in this um, portion of the chapter, um, you'll be getting that lens um, on the literature. Um, this particular cultural misfits gender in early 20th century British literature section is also going to be published in a, a as a book chapter um, in an anthology um, published by Cambridge University Press, edited by Alex Davis and um, Lee Jenkins. Um, and their um, book will be a history of modernist poetry. So um, let me start um, with uh, a section on erotic individuals. The concept of gender relies upon cultural systems that eroticize individuals. Gender invokes a binary with sexuality, even if that sexuality and gender are collapsed into each other so as to seem unitary. Patriarchy, for example, attempts that collapse to equate male with masculine and female with feminine. The binary occurs because gender in its very construction interprets sex through roles, through relationships, and in Western modernist culture through the cliches of masculine-feminine dichotomies. In addition, gender often seems to promulgate itself as a theoretical concept rather than an historical one. Gender has been demarcated as performance and as kinship, to give two examples of influential theoretical emphases. Yet the concept of gender does fluctuate historically. Within the modernist period, Virginia Woolf's narrator in A Room of One's Own, and this is, this is the passage where that occurs, in A Room of One's Own, observes that if an explorer should come back and bring word of other sexes looking through the branches of other trees at other skies, nothing would be of greater service to humanity. Indicating that in modernist literature, neither gender nor sex in this period of, of early 20th century um, was fully stable. Wolf's narrator makes that remark aside while discussing the new form Mary Carmichael might give a novel, new simply because of her gender, illustrating a literary interrogation of gender through changing textual patterns. This same provocative repudiation of rigidity in both gender and textual forms is in evidence in Ezra Pound's bold cry, make it new. His shorthand comment, command to create new textual forms and arguably, given Pound's own experiments with family configurations, new forms of gender. These and other experiments within the specifically literary methodology of textual formation created an approach to gender that conflicted with the emerging social science theories. The literatures represented gender as changeable, not static, 
while social sciences of that time period were concurrently creating models of normative, fixed gender formation. With sophistication in this period, poets misaligned sex and gender, exposing gender in terms of its own construction, highlighting the power of rigid gender construction to kill individuality. By textualizing gender roles, they simultaneously reveal and hide sexuality, and they code and decode sexuality that would be perverse in terms of the authorized gender. An emphasis on sexuality as opposed to gender makes sense. This is, after all, the era of libidinal currents that Joseph Boone recognizes in the fiction of the period. It behooves an accurate understanding of gender in this period to read both sex and gender, since these poets worked hard to separate them. Joseph O. Amone does just that in his rereading of W.B. Yeats's Crazy Jane, sequence of poems appearing in Yeats's Words for Magic, perhaps in 1932. Amone challenges prevailing readings of Crazy Jane's gender by reading her sexuality as male. Amoni makes a solid, exciting case for Crazy Jane representing a transvestite homosexual. He identifies a watercolor of Crazy Jane by Richard Dad, and this is um, the picture on the board. I don't, I don't know if you can see it properly, that if it's come out properly. Here's the head, um, and the arms are raised, and you can see um, the um, skirt below, but certainly the um, face looks provocatively male here in this picture. He identifies a watercolor of Crazy Jane, that's the name of it, by Richard Dadd, and hypothesizes that this picture could be a referent for Yeats since it was exhibited in London in 1913, noting that a close look at the painting will unsettle any conviction that the figure represented is simply a female. Quoting sections from the poems that gives him a case for this reading of Crazy Jane as a transvestite, he notes Crazy Jane's lines, a woman can be proud and stiff, and love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement. Because of this reading of the male sexuality of the figure, which produces a transvestite gender rather than a woman's gender of Crazy Jane, Amone argues that Yeats's own masculinity is complicated he suggests two types of masculinity appear in Yeats' works, a repressed masculinity, where Crazy Jane's homosexuality reflects the repressive, as well as an early sensuous and decadent masculinity. Amoni's reading emphasizes the difficulty of reading sexuality gender identifications. As Amoni concludes, Jane passes as a woman. Amoni's arresting reading signals the sexual duplicity presented in this era of radical changes in roles, relationships, and cultural expectations. His reading makes clear the difficulties of reading gender in modernist poetry, since the normalizing effects of gender make difficult a realization of sex, gender, outs of sex outside gender's historical conception. At least in this series of poems, sexuality would seem to be a matter of barely visible reference for Amoni, multiply elusive, because all the while his reading coexists 
with an equally complicated reading of Crazy Jane based on her gender as a woman. Equally valid is Elizabeth Butler Cullen's force reading of Crazy Jane as, quote, an erotic and licentious female figure. Reading Jane as a woman emphasizes gender rather than sexuality. Since Crazy Jane and the bishop in these poems struggle about normative sexuality and desire, a struggle in which Crazy Jane, a woman unapologetic about her sexuality, states that, quote, love is all unsatisfied, that cannot take the whole body and soul. And that's from um, Yeats' poem, Crazy Jane on the Day of Judgment. The two positions revolve around woman's gender in terms of unacceptable and acceptable attitude towards her body. The bishop, urging Crazy Jane to move from the body to heavenly mansions, reminds her of her age, that those breasts are flat and fallen now, those veins must soon be dry. That's from the poem, Crazy Jane Talks with the Bishop. Crazy Jane, in contrast, places her sexual desires and sexual acts in nature. She and Jack meet under the oak tree, for he wanders out into the night, and there is shelter under it. In another poem, she is naked with the grass in my, as my bed. By placing the body in nature, she infers that the sexual acts are natural ones, not, as the bishop would label them, perverse. This reading of the forceful contrast of societal positions on gender is as potent in these poems as is Amoni's reading of elusive and revelatory sex. Amoni's argument reveals that reading sex and gender in modernist poetry must identify palimpsestic or layers, palimpsestic layers, which might be so conflicting as to seem to cancel each other, though they could coexist. On the surface, these poems relate an anxiety surrounding individual sexuality, which would be subverted when pressed into conformity by institutionalized culture. The bishop's moralizing shaming works as a metaphor for the regimentation that any woman or a transvestite homosexual could expect to endure at the hands of modernist cultural hierarchy. While the bishop tries to insert normative definitions of women's gender sex roles, Crazy Jane defends her body, stating that her body makes no moan but sings on. That's from um, the poem Crazy Jane um, on God. And if you don't know the, these poems, it's a series of poems um, that Yeats um, put all together. Repudiating uh, conformity, Crazy Jane is a misfit, a social outcast, longing for Jack the Journeyman, her lover, who is also an outcast. These tensions between individual sexuality and social gender and the duplicitous invisibility of sex can be identified in more modernist poetry than the Crazy Jane series, which I will show through poetic use of death, mythic iteration, and linguistic repetition. My analysis will show that the tensions appear in so much of the poetry that it can be identified as a specifically modernist poetic marker of an early 20th century cultural struggle, a struggle between the poets and the social scientists whose models defined normative genders out of varying individual sexes and varying sexual actions. Through their documentation of abnormal, the social sciences of this time reinscribed an expectation of individual sex, uh, regulation within a collective scheme. Christiane Miller makes the point 
that there was increasing pressure for stricter normative and more sexually focused categorization in the early part of the century. Social sciences narrated heterosexual sexuality and gender as normative, even while these social sciences recognized and, and to identify the abnormal relied upon individual variations to the normative gender constructions. Internationally famous social science theorists of this period, all with various links to sexuality and gender, Freud, Otto Weininger, Havelock Ellis, Francis Galton, uh, Cesare Lombroso, um, the, the famous criminologist, each classified and typed people. In this way, they were able to identify, define, and essentialize unattainable heterosexual gender normativity of the individual, whether for psychoanalysis, for sex, sexology, for eugenics, or for criminology. Taxonomies of normality and medicalized difference produced and reinvigorated expectations of normative heterosexual sex gender. In the Crazy Jane series of poems, Yeats sets up on surface the normative gender categories of early 20th century Western culture through his bishop, and also defies them through Crazy Jane. The bishop tries to force a normative feminine gender model on Crazy Jane, which reflects the social science reification of sex gender societal expectations. By defining sex and classifying gender, social sciences and the bishop emphasize an authoritative collective to which an individual should perform. Crazy Jane, of course, does not. Modernist poetry amplifies these tensions through individual and collective opposing social sciences. The foregrounded tension marks a particularly literary paradigm in this historical period. The poetry magnifies the tension by creating deliberately unstable textual formations. Throughout the Crazy Jane series of poems, for example, refrains interrupt a ballad formation. And I'm not sure you can um, read if this is um, large enough for you um, to read very clearly. Um, and let me just um, read it um, for you um, and point out the refrains. Bring me to the blasted oak that I, midnight upon the stroke, all find safety in the tomb. May call down curses on his head because of my dear Jack that's dead. Coxcomb was the least he said, the solid man and the coxcomb. Nor was he bishop when his band banished Jack the journeyman, all find safety in the tomb. Nor so much as parish priest, yet he, an old book in his fist, she's talking about the bishop, cried that we lived like beast and beast, the solid man and the coxcomb. The bishop has a skin, God knows, wrinkled like the foot of a goose, all find safety in the tomb. Nor can he hide in holy black the heron's hunch upon his back, but a birch tree stood my Jack, the solid man and the coxcomb. Jack had my virginity and bids me to the oak, for he, all find safety in the tomb, wanders out into the night and there is shelter under it. But should that other come, I spit the solid man and the coxcomb. That's it. Uh, Crazy Jane, of course, is speaking there. Um, that refrain is what I want to speak about. 
Um, the refrain is an old type of textual formation. But when the refrain interrupts this, um, the stanzas, as in Crazy Jane and the Bishop, it satirizes the idea of unity and established meaning. There, the italicized refrain, all find safety in the tomb. And I'm sorry, the, ital the italicization is not in there. But, but that, that, that line is, is um, really pinpointed with the italicization. Occurs in each stanza and interrupts the sequence of lines that follow each other syntactically. This stanza, bring me to the blasted oak that I, midnight upon the stroke, all find safety in the tomb, may call down curses on his head, begins the poem with the refrain interrupting the wish of the speaker to call down curses. The refrain is equally interrupted in each stanza, and it destabilizes the concept of linear meaning. Many cases of textual innervation intersecting with gender reinforce the point that a textual formation underscores the poetic concerns about tensions between gender and individual expression. Two examples already identified by critics come to mind. First, Susan Stanford Friedman notes that by reforming the epic, HD, um, HD is the um, uh, shorthand for Hilda Doolittle, um, feminized epic convention, and David Ayers, who reads Nancy Cunard's Parallax, um, he reads it as a new rhetorical form emerging from Cunard's reading of Eliot in terms of herself. Um, Ayers describes the poem as a quoted voice within a quoted work, uh, a really unusual textual formation, um, and interprets Cunard as creating a hybrid third person with characteristics of both male and female. In poetry by T.S. Eliot, H.D., Stevie Smith, Wilfred Owen, Gertrude Stein, sex, gender, individual, collective, and textual formation coalesce to make visible the fluctuation in gender prominent in this modernist time period. Um, I'm going to turn now to um, some poems that use um, drowning to indicate that, that um, combination. By representing the messiness of human life that cannot fit systemic expectations, modernist poets trouble a seemingly incontestable social science sublimation of an individual into a collective. Rather than mirroring social science understandings of gender, Eliot, Owen, Smith, and H.G. focus on individual exclusion from and rejection of institutional system that, that prescribe gender in models and behavior. They present misfits outside the culture. Um, and this is an early um, uh, book, booklet of um, the Prufrock. For example, Eliot's famous 1917 character, Alfred J. Prufrock, fails in culturally masculine roles. But which is perverse, the man or the culture that enforces the model? The culture of basis Prufrock, providing him with roles such as the fools rather than the acceptably masculine Prince Hamlet or with the dead, or provides him with dead figures for his models, such as Lazarus and John the Baptist. Um, and these um, sections are in this um, second section here. Uh, I'm sorry, this first section. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be an intendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress Start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt, an easy fool. And he presents himself as, as a fool. Um, and then um, 
John the Baptist here, a reference to him as a role is here in this stanza. But uh, though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grow slightly bald, um, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet. So there's that reference to, to John the Baptist there. And then um, in this stanza here, this reference to, to Lazarus. Um, that, and, and I'm just going to read that whole stanza because I'm going to refer to other parts of it um, just a little bit later. And would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to, um, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I should tell you all. If one, settling a pillow by her head, should say, that is not what I meant at all, that is not it at all. And this is, um, of course, J. Alfred Prufrock um, speaking to a woman who he is attracted to. Um, Prufrock enters a dreamlike myth at the end of the poem, which would allow him to fit gendered roles if he could interact with the myth as one might expect. In this dreamland, he heard the mermaids singing each to each. Nevertheless, even in myth, he does not fit. He does not think that they will sing to me. He lingered by sea girls rather than with those earlier women. Um, yet he cannot remain in this dream. He drowns in response to the collective human voices who wake him. And I, I don't think, know that you can read this um, very clearly, so um, let me just... In the room, room with a woman come and go, talking of Michelangelo, those are the women who, he, who reject him, finally. And then he says, shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back. When the wind blows the water white and black, we have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed, red and brown, till human voices wake us and we drown. I love that, that ending of that poem. By the way, I've never been able to figure out why there's that switch between the I there in that last stanza and the we. If anybody has any ideas about that, I'd love to hear them. For Prufrock, women who conform to gender parameters of bracelet, braceleted arms and head against the pillow draw his desire but deny him, saying, that is not what I meant at all. No, not what I meant at all. They parallel the sirens of the mermaids here in these stanzas who call to him, arousing his desire, waking him only to drown him. That language, that song, a mythic one, a patriarchal one, places the woman as the object of desire, which patriarchy has prefigured as entrapping, snaring, and killing. The man, to adhere to the expected masculine relationship with the women of the culture, must enter into that society and be drowned. Of course, this presentation of the woman is misogynistic, as Christiane Miller points out that much of the men's poetry in this period is. But it also places the perversion on the gendered models representing culture, not on the individual. 
In other words, the non-conforming individual is the oppressed figure, so much so that he is killed by the collective human voices because of a rigid formulation of gender, and it is the collective at fault. The inability to fit into a collective shatters an alignment of sexuality and gender. The self dies when confronted with societal expectations of gender conformity. The individual does not match the collective. Strikingly, Eliot, Stevie Smith, and Wilfred Owen all use the metaphor of drowning to represent death caused by patriarchal gender expectations. Owen's use of drowning is the most realistic in that he, the man he describes in Dulce et Decorum S is actually drowning from the reactions in his lungs to the gas in a World War I battle. The death also recurs in the narrator's dream where before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. Owen's gas man drowns, and in response, the fellow soldier narrating the poem scourges patriarchal masculinity in the last broken lines. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate joy, I'm sorry, desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est pro patria more. That literal realistic death by drowning from gas represents the death from allying oneself with the patriarchal myth that it is glorious to die for one's country. This reputation, I'm sorry, this repudiation of authority emerges, Laurie Goldstone suggests, from a memory of fellow soldiers as hapless sacrificial victims, which results in looking at the higher leadership with hostility and suspicion. Um, the tension between individual soldier and a cultural authority developed in the poetry to an erotic pitch, which fraternity, Goldenstone writes, becomes a libidinal battlefield energy deflated from heterosexuality and redirected towards a split of emotions that supports murderous ferocity towards one set of fellows, the commanding officers, and an expense of protective tenderness towards another. And those are um, Laurie Goldenson's um, reading of the poem. Um, Sarah Cole posits that there is an elevated nature casting out a protective sphere for the beloved body. Owens rejects the gendered masculinity of the warmongers when he repudiates conventional developmental models of masculinity in favor of the fraternal going farther than the fraternal can produce. 
Stevie Smith also uses the metaphor of drowning to describe the exiled individual who does not fit in her poem, Not Waving But Drowning. In Not Waving But Drowning, she presents a dead man who is both alive and dead as he lay moaning. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him. His heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was too cold always. Still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life, and not waving, but drowning. The societal figures of the poem misread the man as a chap who always loved larking, since they think he was out in the water waving. The dead man in agony calls, no, 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 repeating that he was not waving, but drowning. As in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, not waving but drowning, insists on a divide between those in society who are able to conform and be in a group, the they, and the separated individual who has not conformed. As in Prufrock and Dulce et Devorum Est, the group is implicated since the dead man was much too far out all my life, too different to be part of the group. Eliot and Smith's positioning of the victim reinforces a realization that the group kills. Smith puts they said on one line alone, as you can see, um, after their collective rushed misidentification of the death, it must have been too cold for him, his heart gave way. Without, without punctuation, the line suggests that the group wants quickly to find a natural cause of death. The dead man revises the meaning of cold as a social one. No, 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 it was too cold always. The natural death of gave way, and that's right here in the earlier line, shifts from a society even though it was what created cold always down here. That rhyme of gave away and cold always gives further poignancy to the man's exile since the meaning is so easily substituted. And without the dead man's voice, the truth would never be known. The multiplicity of doubled readings here, using the same words but shifting causes and effects, reflects the doubleness that Jane Dowson notes in women's poetry of this period when she suggests that the modernist concept of the persona was appropriated by some women to try out different masculine and feminine identities. Smith's poems, as does her nickname Stevie, continuously play with gender identities, as in her poem Child Rolandine, and the substitution of the female for the Victorian male child, Roland. In Not Waving But Drowning, the differentiation and collapse of the persona I of the poem into the framing we, um, I was much further out than you thought, into um, he's dead. Um, uh, the dead man also multiplies the gender positions. Um, I um, am just wondering what time it is because I don't have a watch and I know we're supposed to end it too. It's 25.2. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. Um, I just want to um, talk a little bit about collective and individual myths. Thank you so much. I didn't realize I wouldn't be able to see that clock. Um, 
In the wasteland, Eliot also undermines expected notions of Western masculinity and femininity by referring to male mythological figures. Eliot revives the impotent Fisher King from the literary King Arthur legends, who cannot restore the land. Philomena, raped by Tyrius, tongue cut out, is turned into a nightingale. And Tiresias appears, both male and female, in his body. So these people that are mythological um, return in um, Eliot's The Wasteland. His self-conscious use of these myths creates a modernist signature through an iteration of myth, with then a new inscription of that myth uh, in terms of gender. Eliot inserts mythological figures whose sexuality is already known and then reinscribes that cultural sexuality and gender through the new con context of his urban modern poem. So, for instance, Tiresias looks on at the modern clerk and typist, apathetic figures who lose their individuality in their inherence to the expected sex-gender systems of heterosexual patriarchy. They, um, they have intercourse on, on the bed, and it's, very, um, it, it's not individual at all. Their indifference replaces Zeus and Hera's, Hera's mythic struggles over sexuality that made Tiresias both male and female in the first place. H.D. also instantiates this modernist signature by reinscribing myth. She takes Greek mythic figures as many of her subjects in her 1924 collection Heliodora, figures such as Hermes, Thetis, Penelope, and Helen. The myths are rigid in their gendering, but H.G. rewrites them through the eye voice of these culturally entrenched figures. Helen is in third person, um, who all Greece hates. That's the first line of that poem. While she lives, could love indeed... Helen, who all Greece hates, while she lives, who could love indeed the maid, only if she were laid white ash amid funereal cypresses. For Helen, the system is still defining the individual Helen and her sexuality through gendered conscription, and the collective wants her dead. All Greece hates the still eyes and the white face, the luster as of olives, where she stands and the white hands. All Greece reviles the wan face when she smiles, hating it deeper still when it grows wan and white remembering past enchantments and past ills. Greece sees unmoved, God's daughter born of love, the beauty of cold feet and slenderest knees, could love indeed the maid only if she were laid, white ash amid funereal uh, cypresses. In 1961, however, and that poem's from 1924. In 1961, however, with her epic poem, Helen in Egypt, H.G. devises a Helen who might escape that murder at the hands of the collective. By the time she writes Helen, Helen in Egypt in 1961, and that's a picture of her, H.G. has reworked the binary of gender between individual and collective so that the mythic narrative story of Helen becomes fractured with one story, the violent cultural um, story, uh, giving blame to the woman who causes a war, and that's, those sections are, um, are in prose. Um, and the other, a narrative of an individual, 
uh, who opposes the historical nature. And those sections are in um, poetry. And they're juxtaposed to each other. The um, prose um, is right above the later um, parts um, that are in poetry. Uh, it's just an amazing book in that way. Um, here, here she is just giving a, 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 this is her voice from 1955. Few were the words we said, nor knew each other, nor asked, are you spirit? Are you sister? Are you brother? Are you alive? Are you dead? The harpers will sing forever of how Achilles met Helen among the shades. But we were not. We are not shadows. As we walk heel and soul, leave our sandal prints in the sand. Though the wounded he... You can find that on the web. Um, you just put in... Helen of Egypt, and, and you'll find that those recordings there, I, I think it's University of Pennsylvania that has them all on their website. Um, in this long epic poem, H.G. places Helen in Egypt, not Greece, and she presents her as an individual rather than part of the collective historical Trojan War. H.G. realigns the individual Helen against the group as an individual. The individual subjectivity is valorized against the stigma and oppression of the collective. A doubled voice emerges from the lyrics based upon a doubled imagistically mirrored text formation. This long poem depends on the image more than on narrative, so that as Sherry Benstock reports, dreams and reality, remembrance and ecstatic traces overlap as Helen tries to make sense of her situation. An alienated Helen comes back from the dead. The tension between individual and collective is intense in this epic poem. Helen returns to life through memories of selves that do not seem to be herself. Um, H.D.'s figure of Helen is really dead. Dead not only to her earlier memories, but dead, according to Greek mythology, on the other side of the river Lethe, river of forgetfulness. The figure of Helen marks an identity that no longer exists, since this woman's eye has divided herself in response to war and the collective's narration of her. She disappears from what would be designated as real in the narrative order from which wars can be produced. This marker, this Helen, who is abject object, remembers bits of earlier lives, the life before Paris stole her away and the life with Paris on the battlements of Troy. But she is not those lives. She has forgotten who she is and that, and that Helen, that Helen of war, no longer exists. Um, and um, this um, initial poem will um, clarify that. Um, Do not despair, the host surging beneath the walls, no more than I are ghosts. Do not bewail the fall. The scene is empty and I am alone. Yet in this Amen temple, I hear their voices. There is not veil between us, only space and leisure. And long corridors of lotus bud furled on the pillars and the lotus flower unfurled. With need of the papyrus, Amen, or Zeus we call him, brought me here. 
Fear nothing of the future or the past. He, God, will guide you, bring you to this place as he brought me, his daughter, twin sister of twin brothers, and Clytemnestra, shadow of us all. The old enchantment holds. Here there is peace for Helena, Helen, hatred of all Greece. Um, Even though Helen is dead, death accomplishes that division from the culturally created woman who was called a curse, who could not return home, who left her husband for Paris, the Helen H.D. imagined in 1924. Helen in Egypt cannot remember, and when she does not remember, she dies again. Thus, through death and division, H.D. imagines two Helens, one in Troy and one in Egypt. H.D. can present one Helen created in all her gendered stereotypes as Helen of Troy and another, an individual, dead in that life, as was Stevie Smith's drowned eye, who can escape, finally, the prescribed gender subjectivities. Um, I want to uh, turn just briefly to a textual formation that is a very weird um, highly interesting, um, and that is um, a, a formation that Gertrude Stein represents, and you can see her here on the, on the, um, uh, on the screen. Um, that's Gertrude Stein, and in the background is her lover, Alice B. Toklas. Um, and this is the little bit of po patriarchal poetry that I want to look at. I'll just read it right now. How do you do it? Patriarchal poetry might be withstood. Patriarchal poetry at peace. Patriarchal poetry a peace. Patriarchal poetry in peace. Patriarchal poetry in pieces. Um, the, whole, the whole poem is a little like that. It's kind of exciting. Um, positioning individual eroticized bodies against an exterminating collective gender was not the only technique used by modernist poets to oppose rigid uh, social science gender models. Gertrude Stein also opposes patriarchal rigidity with alternative gendering, continuously emphasizing the sexual politics of the period, both materially and linguistically. Um, the title of patriarchal poetry alone marks this piece as an expose of the gender system patriarchy. Throughout the poem, Stein references methodologies of social sciences, such as categorization, by presenting questions that define through difference. What is the difference between Elizabeth and Edith? The voice of the poem asks. Um, and the formulation repeats across the surface of the poem, using inanimate objects, abstractions, and puns that could not possibly be categorized together. What is the difference between a glass pen and a pen? What is the difference between right away and a pearl? What is the difference between ardent and ardently? What is the difference between a fig and an apple? These questions appear like taglines, separated but referencing each other, spatially distant but grammatically calling out one to another. These formulations mimic social science models of classification and type, satirizing that model of classification. If there is a difference between a fig and an apple, then Elizabeth and Edith must be different from each other, rather than grouped as woman. The categorizations range widely and hilariously, as with right away and pearl, but make the point that even the most nuanced of differentiations, glass pen and pen, 
for example, make the objects different, not the same. Referencing gender and associating it with type or categorizations, Stein substitutes rhyming words one after the other to stand with the phrase patriarchal poetry, which is also the title. By substituting words that sound the same, she divides and conquers the phrase, holding it in abeyance, making it ridiculous. These variations, at piece, a piece, in piece, in pieces. How do you do it? Patriarchal poetry might be withstood. Patriarchal poetry at piece, patriarchal poetry, a piece, patriarchal poetry at, in piece, patriarchal poetry in pieces. Through this sort of listing, Stein calls to attention the act of regimenting social organization of human sexuality and imposes meanings that continuously substitutes for another meaning. The poem Patriarchal Poetry emphasizes the material and linguistic sexual politics of the period. In contrast to the dehumanization of categories, Stein references to sex are bodily and experiential, such as her repetitious and extended wet inside and pink outside, pink outside and wet inside, wet inside and pink outside. Sexuality, as in the poetry of Eliot in HD, is the modernist uh, sexuality, as in the poetry of Eliot and H.D., is the modernist poetic mark that contravenes systemic systems of gender. Now, I'll just end with uh, a, an overview um, of some of the um, hallmarks of the period. The First World War, urban development, new family structures help explain complex changes in developments in early 20th century masculinities and femininities. The new woman and suffragette defy traditionally defined womanhood, of course, and shell shock counters expectations of masculinity. The violence of these sorts of social uh, eruptions unsettled the unifying models of the early 20th century social sciences, such as psychology, sexology, eugenics, and criminology. The social science models do provide a useful context for the literature of the period. The lives and works of the literary writers, however, belie the notion of one-to-one -one literary reflection of social sciences. Differing from literature, social sciences of the time created methodology that incorporated and retained tensions between normal and deviant methodology inherited from 18th and 19th century theories of race. The social sciences claimed individuals as representatives of types, defining both normal and deviant within social structures such as the family, race, and nation. Sexology, psychology, eugenics, criminology all use the individual case history in order to elucidate a normative gender pattern to create a model of collectivity. Then, once the theory was formed out of those individual stories, any individual's gender, no matter what it was, even if it was very strange, was judged as normal or deviant in terms of the collective patterns. By inserting individual sexualities, early 20th century poets were able to contravene the classificatory gender work of the turn of the century social sciences. The deliberate misalignment between gender and sex emerges as a modernist literary paradigm through which Yeats, H.D., T.S. Eliot, Owen, Smith, and Gertrude Stein deliberately shifted intensely and with determination a social science collapse of the notions of sex and gender. Thank you. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.